Welcome to the official podcast for Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization. I'm Beth, a.k.a. Triumvir Clio. Hello again. Welcome back. Have you voted yet? Do you plan to vote in person? Have you figured out who you're going to vote for? If you're listening when this drops, there is still time for all of that. We are up to book nine of the Odyssey. Um, I own the Fitzgerald translation, so that's what I'm using. But I can tell you that Lattimore's translation makes an excellent and thrilling read aloud for this book. And this was originally transmitted orally, so it kind of makes sense to listen to it, doesn't it? You could be, oh, audiobook, that would be great. Anyway, however you're reading along or not, (laughs) I don't judge. Um, We're finally getting to what you probably think of when you think of the Odyssey. Um, When we left off, Elkinoas had finally asked for his guest's name, and book nine picks up with Odysseus's answer. Odysseus starts by complimenting his host and Demodocus's singing. Um, He then comments that the question of his identity um, was asked because he was crying, but telling his story is going to make him cry even more. So where to start? Well, his name. He decides that maybe that's a good place, and he finally tells the Phaeacians that he is the son of Laertes, Odysseus, and that he's known for being clever, that he's from Ithaca, a rocky place, but a good place to grow up. And even though he spent time on Calypso's Island and on Kerkes too, both beautiful places, he'd still rather be on Ithaca because that's where his family is. So what has happened since he left Troy? Well, first, he and his fleet sailed to Ismaros, where the Kikones live. He stormed the place, killing the men and enslaving the women. No reason, just because. And then his men got drunk and feasted and plundered to excess and didn't do a good job keeping watch, so some of the enslaved were able to escape. And no surprise, the Kikones assembled an army and marched down to the shore. Odysseus managed to escape along with most of his men, but six benches were left empty on each ship by the time they got away. The next morning, they cried a lament before setting sail, but they didn't get far before Zeus sent a storm that lasted for two days. Odysseus was almost home by that point, but then a north wind blew him off course. He and his men sailed for another nine days before finding land on the 10th. Um, There's that that nine and then ten that we frequently see. Um, At this time, Odysseus and his men land where the lotus eaters live. The lotus is a flower, and that is what the lotus eaters eat, obviously. Odysseus sends three of his men to learn more about the people on this island. The men are befriended by the lotus eaters and enjoy some lotus themselves. Now, here's the thing about lotus flowers. When you eat them, they make you forget about everything else. Yes, the lotus eaters are high all the time. It's a happy high, very mellow, but very focused on just having more lotus flowers. And that, of course, is what happens to Odysseus's scouts. Odysseus has to perform an intervention, drag the three back to the ship, and tie them to their benches until they detox. Odysseus and his men sail on, coming to the land of the Cyclopes, or Cyclops in English, but I kind of like saying Cyclopes. Um, Anyway, they don't land on that island. 
I know that's what you're expecting, but that's that's not what they do. There's another island nearby that's within sight, and that's where Odysseus and his men land. And this other island is a good place to go. It's uninhabited except for some goats that look delicious, and some of whom soon are gathered and added to the food stores on each ship. But Odysseus can see that other island. Oh, it's just, it's there, and and he can't stand it. Curiosity gets the better of him. He tells his men that he really wants to see what's over there and takes one ship, leaving the majority of his crew to wait while the rest go and explore. They land near a cave where they see this giant of a man, if he can be called that, tending his flock of sheep and goats. Odysseus takes 12 of his crew, leaving the rest to wait at the ship. He also takes this wineskin that had been gifted to him. Even once the wine has been uh, diluted with water to a 1 to 20 ratio, so one, one part of this, of this wine and 20 parts of water, it still reeks of alcohol. I mean, this is something, whew, this is potent stuff. Um, anyway, so he takes that as well. It's going to be important later. <laughs> Odysseus and the Twelve go into the cave. The Kiklops that lives there is off doing his shepherd thing, so no one's home. Um, so they explore. There are pens for sheep and goats and all of the accoutrements required for a dairy, including some cheese that's curing. Um, the men suggest that they take that cheese to the ship and then come back for the animals and then just hightail it out of there. Yeah, that, that would have been a really good idea. But Odysseus? Mm, Yeah, no. He says no. He wants to meet the giant. Maybe he'll have some even better gifts if they play the good guest instead of plundering. Or, or, you know, not not so much. Um, The Kiklops comes home, bringing the ewes into his cave and leaving the rams outside before he figuratively closes the door (laughs) with a literal boulder. Um, It's not really closing the door because it's not a door. It's a... Anyway, he tends to the milking and cheese making. Before turning to the interlopers in his home, he asks who they are and what brings them to his island. Odysseus answers that they are Achaeans on their way home from Troy. By Zeus's will, they have been blown off course on their way home. You know Zeus, right? The god who protects guests? The giant laughs at this. The Kiklopes don't fear Zeus. Clearly, this bodes well for Odysseus and his men. The Kiklops asks where their ship is. Odysseus realizes that he probably should stop telling the truth, so he says that they crashed. Yep, ship's gone, splintered. <laughs> We're the only survivors. The Kiklops responds by, well, he doesn't so much respond as he ignores this statement, picks up two of the men, kills them, and eats them. Then he curls up among his sheep and goes to sleep. Odysseus is tempted to kill him in revenge right then, but he realizes that there's no way he and his men can move that boulder um, that's blocking the entrance to the cave. So if they kill the giant, they'll be trapped inside. In the morning, the Kiklops wakes up and tends to his milking and cheese making and eats a couple more men for breakfast before taking the sheep out to graze. He does not forget to roll the boulder back across the doorway to keep his guests trapped inside. Odysseus does not spend the day in a panic, however. He sees this club or maybe a staff or maybe just the trunk of an olive tree that the Kiklops uses for one of those purposes, and that gives him an idea. 
Odysseus and his men carve one end to a point and turn it in the fire to toughen the wood. And then they hide their work before the Cyclops comes home, which, of course, he does. This time, he brings the rams and the ewes in for the night. He eats two more of Odysseus's men for dinner, which means he has now eaten half of the men Odysseus brought with him. He brought 12. The Cyclops has had three meals, two men apiece, three times two equals six. Math teacher here. <laughs> um, after he's finished, uh, Odysseus offers him some wine, and the Cyclops accepts. He deems it good and asks for seconds and then thirds. And you'll recall that this is some pretty strong drink, so it, it works. It does what Odysseus is hoping. And when the Cyclops is good and drunk, Odysseus finally answers the first question he was asked. You wanted to know my name? Well, here it is. Nobody. My name is Nobody. That's what everyone calls me. Nobody. The Keyclops thinks nothing of this name and pronounces that he'll save Nobody to eat last. Then he falls into a drunken sleep. Odysseus and four of his men stick their recently formed weapon in the fire to heat it back up and then drive it into the Keyclops' eye. And, well... Homer does not spare the details, which I suppose shouldn't surprise us, given how gory the Iliad gets at times. Um, I am not going to <laughs> relay it. You, you can read it yourself. Uh, the Cyclops, of course, wakes up at this assault and cries out. Um, and the other Cyclopes on the island hear him and call out to him, um, which is when we finally learn the giant's name. It's Polyphemus. Polyphemus, you okay, buddy? What's happening? Someone hurt you? And Polyphemus replies, nobody, nobody has poked out my eye. And you can't blame the rest of the Cyclopes for shrugging at that and telling him that in that case he should pray to his father. And this is when we learn who Polyphemus's father is. Poseidon. Odysseus dances a little jig at how well his plan is gone. Now he just needs to get himself and his men out of the cave. And he does this by tying rams together three abreast and tying one man under the belly of the center of each threesome. For himself, he holds on tight to the biggest and wooliest of the rams. I mean, he can't exactly tie himself to one, so he just has to hold on for dear life as Polyphemus lets the sheep out, counting them as he goes, and he, and he pats, you know, the backs of them to just to make sure the men aren't escaping. But, of course, the men are tied safely where he can't feel, right? Um, and the trick... The trick almost goes awry when Polyphemus notes that the last ram, which is the one Odysseus is clinging to, is usually the first out the door. He's, he's the leader of the herd, and yet today, today he dawdles. Um, once they are safely outside, Odysseus unties his men, and they all run back to their ship, taking some sheep with them, of course. But <sighs> Odysseus can't help himself. Once they are safely away, he taunts the Cyclops. And Polyphemus may be blind now, but he can still hear. And he breaks off the top of a hill and hurls it in the correct direction. And Odysseus's men plead for him to just shut up. But he doesn't. Odysseus just can't help himself. As he sails away, he calls back to Polyphemus. You want to know who I am? Odysseus, son of Laertes. You know, the one from Ithaca? That's who I am.
Polyphemus cries out. He remembers that a prophet told him that he would one day lose his eye to Odysseus. He always figured Odysseus would be some giant of a man, not this puny human. He prays to his father, Poseidon, to avenge him. And he hurls another boulder, just missing the ship. Odysseus and his crew make it back to the other island where the rest of his men and ships await. They divide up the sheep and make an offering to Zeus. But Zeus doesn't listen. They spend the night on the uninhabited island, and in the morning they depart, sadly remembering the six men lost to the Kiklopes. And that is the end of Book Nine. I'm going to start by saying retelling this is a little awkward. Um, We generally write about art in the present tense because it still exists. Every time we reread a book, it happens again. Um, So if you are taking an AP English class, if you're actually in high school and learning this, write in the present tense. That really is the appropriate tense to use. Um, but, (laughs) But now we've reached a point in which a present tense Odysseus on Phaeacia is telling about his past. Uh, so what what tense should I be writing in? So I apologize if I switch from present to past, present, because um, like I said in, in the episode about book eight, the majority of this epic is, in fact, a story within a story. We are getting Odysseus telling us the story of what happened to him. Um, I will also say that the first time I read this book, I was so confused. I didn't know about transliteration, but I did know the story about Odysseus and the Cyclops, or, you know, at least I had a vague understanding of it. Um, But every time Cyclops, you know, it says Kiklops. So, um, and I... I, I had a an awesome teacher the first time I read it, but he didn't go over um, over what transliteration is, so why all of these places, there were names that I knew in English spelled with the letter C, um, why in this translation they were all spelled with Ks, um, like, I, like Kirke um, or Circe is how we frequently name her in English. Um, And while I'm still on a bit of a tangent, (laughs) when my daughter was still in the board book age, I filled her library with books by Sandra Boynton, obviously, and with Baby Lit. Um, And when I saw that there was a Baby Lit of the Odyssey, of course I had to buy it. And of course I was tickled every time that she would pick it out out to read. Like there would be times that she'd be like, I want a book to read in in bed. And that would be one like, yay, that's my girl picking out the Odyssey. Um, so, (laughs) So Baby Lit, they're all like, alphabet books or about opposites or colors or or whatever odyssey it's a it's a primer of all of the monsters that appear in the odyssey including polyphemus um and the the pictures are delightful um so you know i still enjoy i i still enjoy looking at it even though we're now into the age of ramona quimby and phoebe and her unicorn both of which are delightful just in a different way um, so if, if you are at a bookstore or a library and there's a baby lit collection, at least pick up and flip through the Odyssey because um, they are just charming little Easter eggs for grown-ups. Um, anyway, okay, so 
what does all of what happens in book nine mean? Um, we could spend time discussing addiction and the Lotus Eaters, but I already mentioned that in the summary, so you know, I don't feel the need to go into a lot of detail on it. If you really want to spend time on that, we can talk about it over on the blog, triumvirclio.school.blog, um, if you don't have it bookmarked yet. Um, and the reason that I'm leaving that off is because of the much bigger topic of nature versus civilization. Ooh. I don't know if you've noticed that I sometimes label discussion prompts as AP credit because they're just so literary analysis-y. Um, in this, honestly, this could be one of those. Nature versus civilization has depicted in the Cyclops Island and um, in the Odyssey. Um, but I'm still going to talk about it here um, because it is, it, it is a key thing to what we're seeing in, in Odysseus's journey of these places that he goes through and these there's a lot of wildness that he that he travels through um so whether that's wildness that's happening in his in his mind and in his soul to get back it's very liminal I said that at the beginning I, one of the reasons I love the Odyssey is because it's just like one giant metaphor for liminality um anyway so um so this topic of of um nature versus civilization overarches um, the, what shall we call it, the encounter between Odysseus and Polyphemus. The island of the Cyclopes is a wild place. It's inhabited, but not in any civilized way, at least not as, Odysse as Odysseus would recognize civilization. Polyphemus literally lives in a cave. Um, he happens to have the trunk of an olive tree lying around. And if we want to get really literary about it, we see this in the language Odysseus uses to describe everything he sees. He speaks of nature in fully cultural terms. There's this trunk of the olive tree, right? I mean, so it's a trunk of a tree. It is a thing of nature. But Odysseus compares it to the mast of a ship which is a completely cultural thing, right? Um, when he describes what happens to Polyphemus's eye, he compares it to a blacksmith working with iron. Um, and now, of course, it's a bit more complicated than this. We see that Polyphemus is a shepherd, and he's a pretty good one at that. He cares tenderly for his flocks. I mean, sure, we see him caring tender, and then immediately he eats some people, but... but as a shepherd, he really, he's a good shepherd. But he seems to come from a different age than Odysseus. I mean, you know, we've got the Stone Age and the Bronze Age and the Iron Age, right? Um, and Odysseus, the um, these epics are Bronze Age epics. Um, and so if we think about the fact that the Cyclopes are an ancient race, that's what Hesiod um, tells us, that they, they were created you know, they predate the Olympian gods, right? So the, the, they're, they're ancient. So in some ways, that might be part of what's going on in this story is this clash between this ancient, ancient Stone Age Cyclopes and the Bronze Age Odysseus. So is it really that civilization doesn't exist on this island? Or is it that... Is Odysseus right, I guess, is, is my question. Um, 
So he doesn't think there's civilization here. But is he is he right in his thinking? Um, and the thing that we have to ask ourselves is how much we should trust Odysseus as a storyteller. And again, that's what this is. This is a story that Odysseus is telling the Phaeacians. And I'm not going to go into a lot about um, reliable narrators <laughs> right now, um, but that is something to keep in mind. Um, yes, we know that something has happened to have left him alone. But is he a reliable narrator? Did all of this, as he describes it, happened? Or is this a story that he tells to explain why Poseidon has prevented him from reaching home all these years? And in case you missed that point, Polyphemus is Poseidon's son, so Poseidon has been exacting revenge on Odysseus for the whole I thing. Or at least that's the story we've been given to believe whether or not it's accurate. And it might be. I would love to hear your thoughts on our tale so far. Um, what do you think of our titular hero? I know some people love him. I try not to judge. I mean, he's better than Agamemnon. Um, <laughs> he's, I, I, yeah, he's not perfect, um, but I suppose that makes him very human. Anyway, um, come share your thoughts on the blog, Triumvirus clio.school.blog. Um, the URL and maybe a link are in the show notes in case you don't have it bookmarked yet. I know I keep saying that, but you should. You should bookmark it. Um, that'll make it easier to find to, to join the discussion. On Friday, we will have another short myth episode, this time about the Homeric hymn to Asclepius. Talk to you then. You can join the discussion of this and everything covered in this podcast by following the link in my show notes. And if you're enjoying what you've heard so far, please consider supporting the show with a monthly donation of your choosing, just like public radio. And please also consider giving a five-star review on your podcatcher of choice so that more people can discover the fun that is Triumvir Clio's School of Classical Civilization.